Leads, leads, leads. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, an oral history podcast about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 loiners over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them about what they do all day and hear how they feel about it. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. My mission here is to try to map out what my city, Leeds, a city that has declared a climate emergency, did during humanity's biggest emergency. On working hours, we hear how loiners have, are, and will be coping with our multiple and expanding crises during their day-to-day working hours. Can we turn things around? We'll find out. To tell this story, I need loiners. Loiners like you, dear listener. I need people in Leeds or people from Leeds to come on this podcast and just tell me what they do all day and let me record how this affects us. Thank you for listening. What did you want to be when you grew up? I think if I go back and um, I can recall a, a family um, trip down to my auntie's farm in uh, Bickley near Chester and I think I'd probably be about three years of age. And in those days, we went by train. It was from Bradford Exchange, no longer there, of course. Uh, change at Huddersfield, change at Staley Bridge, change at Stockport. And then we got the, the train from Stockport to Crewe. And I can remember this great big steam engine coming into the platform and leaning out of the cab was my Uncle Joe. I mean, what a, a coincidence. Uh, so I, we went to the front of the train, father lifted me up onto the uh, footplate and I was okay until he opened the firebox door and then jumped into my father's arms and whoa! Uh, and uh, <laughs> obviously went on to have many uh, a holiday down, uh, as, as I got more interested in uh, engines and railways with with my uncle and, uh, and auntie uh, and I'd get trips around crew north, crew south, engine sheds, perhaps have a mate with me. Mm. So railways, the answer to the question is railways, Simon. Yeah. And was it, did you have a job in mind straight away or you were just like, I just need to work around trains? I didn't actually have a job in mind. Um, when, when I went to the local grammar school, um, which was Carlton Grammar School based at the top of, of Manor Row in Bradford, the playground mm. overlooked what was um, then Bradford Foster Square Station, six platforms, great big station, a, a daily train to obviously London, St Pancras from Bradford, to uh, the Devonian started there and went down to Paynton by a Torquay. Um, and also there was the Bradford Valley Goods Yard, which is now um, a shopping um, centre. And um, the train spotters of the day spent their uh, playtime looking over the wall onto this great rail complex. So that mm. uh, cemented in my mind railways. And um, I think I mentioned to you earlier that uh, on one occasion, I think I was 14, and a group of us thought, well, why don't we form the Carlton Rail Fans Society? So I was the one chosen to go and have a word with the head to see if he'd agree to you that we could use the name the Carlton Rail Fans Society. He regularly agreed, thought it was a great idea. I suppose he was thinking, mm-hmm. young guys off street corners. 
Um, and mm. also, uh, Mr. Jack Widdop, one of our masters, was a mad keen uh, rail enthusiast, and he joined as well. So I became the president of that, Simon, and uh, used to arrange trips around engine sheds. Um, you did that by writing to various regions, and you got a permission uh, for X number of people that you could take around an engine shed. It was mainly Saturday and, and Sunday um, that, that would allow you to do that when things were quieter. And um, mm -hmm. I'd go down to West Yorkshire Road Car Company, which is a, a, a coach um, organisation, book a coach, and we'd either leave on a Saturday evening and then go around the sheds on a Sunday, or if it was like the Midlands, we'd leave early Sunday morning with Mr. Widdop, mm. and uh, I can remember him, uh, I came, would say to him, oh, Mr. Widdop, so so he said, you're the president, you're in charge, I'm, I'm just a member, <laughs> a lovely, lovely guy. Uh, sadly, I heard he passed away not uh, that long ago. And uh, mm. so that, again, organising all these trips, when I um, was 16 and did my O-levels, um, I ended up with two, which was uh, my own fault because I was so besotted with railways. I didn't do the necessary um, uh, swatting, but I did get maths and technical drawing and metalwork, would you believe? Um, I then went to, I applied for the railways, obviously. I then went down to, um, I think it was the last coach I was hiring. And as I was leaving, the, the management team there at um, Chester Street, which is no longer a bus station now, uh, said, oh, by the way, Keith, we'd really like to offer you a job. You'd make a brilliant management mm. trainee, and we've got to know you over the last two years. That And that was very reassuring, Simon. But um, I, I just grinned and said, sorry, wrong wheels. <laughs> and, uh, and, that was, and that was that. Um, I then went, I was called for an interview at York, and it was a question of um, an exam in the morning. This was at um, the, uh, which is now the Grand Hotel in York, not far from the station, amazing building. And um, if you pass the exam, you went for lunch, you came back, and they'd say yes or no. Um, the next thing was a medical, obviously, particularly emphasis on eyesight on railways, you can imagine. Um, and if you pass the medical, then you went in for an interview. And I, mm. I don't know why, but throughout my career, when there was a group of people, I was usually the last in, um, whether it was because they were youngest or not, I don't know. And um, all these guys were coming out from the interview with uh, scowls on the face. And, oh, you know, that was mm. horrendous. You need to know about the politics or the economy or so forth. I went in, sit down, Mr. Maidley. Um, and um, the question was, why do you want to join the railway? Well, I'm president of the School Railway Society. Oh, interesting. What do you do? It was then uh, I noticed the testing on, um, I'd say we'd, we'd been to Scotland or we'd been to Wales or wherever, and then came the question, mm. oh, Scotland, did you go around Paul Maddy sheds? Did you go down X? Wales, did you go around some you know, sheds in Cardiff? Which, of course, we'd done. Um, and I think that was just a little test question. So it was a great interview. I came out with a big smile on my face. And literally within uh, a week or so, I got the letter and I was appointed uh, clerical officer grade four at Bradford Foster Square. Back to the station mm. that I used to look out over from. Ideal. Ideal. 
Um, and that was a, an interesting job. It was in the parcels department, um, and it was a shift uh, way of working. So it was early mm -hmm. shift started at seven. Um, in the early shift, you would work, be working with a, a porter. Uh, he would pick up a, a parcel for delivery in the Bradford area. You would enter it on a sheet. Um, so that the driver then, when he took the load away, knew exactly what he was delivering, could work out his route. Mm -hmm. um, the late shift was the other way. It was parcels coming in to be sent out by rail. And a porter would pick the parcel up and it would say, this one's going to so-and-so in Crewe or Northampton. And then it would go into different um, cages for the appropriate part of the uh, parcels train. Really interesting. Mm. Um, and uh, and then the third week was 9 till 5, and that was in the office dealing with things like claims and um, you know, things that had, uh, had gone astray and so forth. And that was okay, Simon. And I did that for two years, um, and uh, salary kept nudging up. That was fine. Um, and I kept thinking, do I want to be doing this for another 10, 15 years? But it was a super group of people there and people like, I suppose today you would call them mentors. Uh, and I can remember one guy, Ralph, Ralph was a grade two, he'd be in his 30s and I'm thinking, do I really want to be doing this for all, all these years? Uh, but in those days it was British Railway um, and uh, you got a monthly uh, vacancy list coming around and you could choose um, or apply for jobs all over the system. Mm -hmm. And on one occasion, uh, I can remember this really well at lunchtime, we were all looking at this list, and we saw these new jobs advertised in the southern region, and it was called Advanced Train Information Clerks. And we all thought, oh, this sounds interesting. Did a little bit of research. And these posts were based in, in those days, of course, there were lots of marshalling yards. You don't really see it as as much today, and that's something that, we're hoping to address in the Cones books. I'll come to that later into the interview. Uh, but in those days, there were lots of marshalling yards and a train would perhaps leave Dover. It would go into Hither Green, which is the one I applied for. Um, you, uh, the, the porters, um, sorry, the shunters would then split the train up and there might be something going to the East Coast, something to the West Coast, and it would go then to the next marshalling yard. Mm. And someone came up with a, a great idea in those days that um, the guard of the train would go down with a dictaphone and he'd, he'd get the details of each wagon. So it might be uh, the different types of wagon. It might be what we call a van fit, which was a closed-in wagon with parcels in. So it would be van fit, number so-and-so, so-and-so, coming from Dover to Wakefield. Um, that would come to us. We'd code that. And in those days, it was all sent by telex machine. Mm. What do you think that? I don't know whether you ever saw a telex machine, Simon. You might not be old enough. I don't think so. <laughs> like Facts, yes, but telex, I might have seen one once. Yeah, the, the, when I think back in those days, it was so modern was this, and you, you would code it, and then you'd uh, press a button, and this tape would come out uh, with all the different holes in it in format. Then you'd put it onto a machine, press the button, and it would send the message uh, to the next marshalling yard. You would say, of course, antiquated now, but in those days, again, uh, um, leading technology. Mm. So we applied for these jobs, and um, three of us ended up uh, on the for a, um, an interview at the southeastern division 
of the, the southern region in London. It's actually in the city of London. I was last in, and as I walked in, the, the interviewing team, chairman in the middle, two wingers, a bit like a magistrate's court, and these three were chuckling, and they said to me, uh, Mr. Maidley, will you go and look out of the window? And I looked at them, I thought, a strange request. So I went and looked out the window, turned round, and these guys were in stitches. Come and sit down. You're the third person from Bradford today for, the, for these roles. Um, and we wanted to prove to you that the streets of London are not paved in gold. <laughs> so needless to say, Simon, I got the job. And the chairman of the interviewing panel, Mr. Rogers, eventually interviewed me when um, I became uh, uh, for an interview for the you know, station manager's job. Right. So I got to know him really well, but I, I was appointed. Now, I was then 18, and this was a grade three, which was unheard of in those days in Bradford. Mm. If you got a grade three in your 30s, you were going places. If you got a grade two in your 30s, 40s, you were arriving, and everybody was jockeying for these positions because the, the higher your salary was. When you retired, of course, it was based on your final salary. Hmm. Um, and in those days, everybody thought job for life. Yeah. Amazing how things have changed. So grade three. Now, that was okay. I got a lot of stick from my colleagues at Bradford, but I was an only child. And I said, yeah, okay, I've got the job, but I've now got to go and move and live in southeast London, not, not the best uh, of places, uh, even in those days. Hmm. Um, and, but I kept thinking to myself, uh, I, I obviously didn't, um, I, I was too young to go for what was national service in those days, you mm. know, conscription. But I thought, well, this is my way, really. I mean, to leave home and, and lodge in London. Mm-hmm. Went down with, a, so two of us actually got these jobs and I went down with another guy who was also called Keith. He was married. So originally we, we had board and lodgings and then we eventually found an apartment and I moved in with him and his wife in uh, um, Broccoli in southeast London. Um, so that, that worked well, and I'd, I was a year at Hither Green, and then uh, these jobs were advertised, similar roles, but at a place called Bricklayer's Arms, mm. and these were grade two. Mm. Uh, to my amazement, I got the grade two position. I was only 19. You can imagine the comments back in uh, Bradford when they you know, heard about this. <laughs> I'd, I'd call in occasionally when I was... Uh, back home you know with with, with my parents and um so grade two now it's a bricklayer's arms and and this i'm getting to the point now where this formulated what what i eventually uh, came to do i met a guy again today we'd call him a mentor we'd never heard that name in those days but freddie wales was a relief station manager and he used to tell me about his experiences uh, as a, a relief station manager and what he'd achieved over his uh, his career. And I just said to him one day, Freddie, I love what you're doing and um, I've listened to it and that's really made me focus. I think I'd like to become a station manager. Mm. How do I go about it? So Freddie, in fairness, coached me. He arranged for me to spend time in a booking office in my own time, of course, work experience. He arranged for me to attend uh, engineering works mm. because if a, if there was a section of line that was closed for engineering works, 
you as the station manager for those stations, you have to arrange a bus service, local bus service, to get your passengers from A to B. Mm. So did all that. And um, and then I was 20, and I was called up for, uh, it was a full day's, um, it was a verbal examination with a senior officer who took you through everything that you would uh, come across as a station manager from... Yeah robbery in the bucket office, um, staff absence, tease them, um, engineering works, you, you name it, you were taken through it. And at the end of the day, it was about, uh, must have been six hours uh, of, a, of a verbal examination interview, and uh, it was a guy called Singleton, and Mr. Singleton said, please tell you, you've, you've passed and signed the papers, and uh, that will be sent to... Uh, the personnel department, and um, I wish you well for the future. Mm. So I was 20. Everybody said, uh, my colleagues of the day, there's no way you'll get a job until you're probably 25 as a station manager. And you were never told on the day, Simon, at the interview whether you were successful or not. Mm. You would get a letter within a week. So to my amazement, I'm sat, uh, I got called for an interview, uh, and three stations in South East London called Bellingham, Beckenham Hill and Ravensbourne uh, on a line from London to uh, Bromley in Kent. Um, and it was Mr. Rogers. And taken through the interview, etc., etc. And to my amazement, at the end of the interview, he looked at the two wingers either side and they nodded. And he leaned back and took a sort of a deep breath. You know, I can see him doing it now. And then he leaned back on the desk. And he said, now, Vinky, I've checked. We today are going to appoint you to this role. Well, you can imagine, as he said that, we're going to appoint you to the next Simon. You will be the youngest ever station manager on British Rail. Mm. And you won't let me down, will you? Uh, no, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> so I was 21 and I got the role. Um, I was uh, to then wait to be released until um, somebody was appointed uh, when I was at Bricklayer's Arms. And uh, and then I'm called down to start the role, but there was a, a month on uh, on-site training yep. with another release station manager. And I spent the month with this guy. And as we came to the Friday night of the fourth week, um, the telephone went and it was um, head office mm. and it was a public relations uh, department. Oh, uh, Mr. Medley, we've been told that you take over on Monday morning uh, we're just letting you know, we were sending uh, one of our colleagues down. He'll be with you to guide you through the interviews. Because in those days, technically, you weren't supposed to speak direct to the mm. press. I don't know whether it's changed now. Um, and ironically, this guy was called, another guy called Keith, and he was from Doncaster. So um, uh, I had a telephone conversation with the guy. He said, I'll meet you on Monday morning mm. at uh, sort of 8 o'clock-ish. Um, the negative to all this one, uh, Simon, was we just moved to Farisham, mm. which is probably about 40-odd miles from Bromley. And uh, Mr. Rogers did say, where are you living? Oh, we just moved to a new home in Faversham, Mr. Rogers. Well, the bad news is you're going to have to move back because you have to live within 20 minutes' walk of the station yeah. <laughs> on call purposes. And um, so come the Monday morning, I worked out my trains, uh, got the train from Faversham, change it, Chatham. And uh, you, you you probably know what I'm going to say to you. I couldn't believe it. The announcement, the so-and-so train to London via Bromley is cancelled. The next train is XYZ. 
I thought, I don't believe this. So again, because long story short, eventually got this train. So instead of arriving, at, I think it was 10 to 8 at Bellingham, which was the main station of the three, it was 20 past. And I, I can still see to these to this day, Simon, as I arrived and the do- opened the door and put my hat on, and I'm in uniform, and there's all these flashing of cameras and comments shouting, you're late, you're late. And it was reporters. And uh, I mean, what's changed from what you see to, today with other people? And mm. um, I said, well, it's not my fault. The train was cancelled. Um, and the, the headline in all the nationals the following day was, sorry, I'm running a little late, said the station manager. And I thought, yeah, oh, dear me. Um, <laughs> great, great news. No such thing as bad publicity is the key. Well, exactly. <laughs> and I suppose really that gave me uh, another look of public relations, PR, as you and I know it. Um, after the rush hour, Keith went off to back to London. And I went up into the booking office and had two super clerks there, Noel and, and Ron. And uh, they'd been there quite a few years. And there was a little custom. After the 906 had gone to London, there were two booking office windows. One would close. And Noel and Ron would take it in turns to cook a, a, a full English breakfast. And uh, who, of course, was served first? Me. <laughs> and uh, so do you wonder, you know, keep, uh, no wonder I put a tummy on. Um, anyway, I had my breakfast, went back down there, and I said, right, guys, I better go into the office and look at the paperwork. And I just sat down, and there was a knock on the door. Come in. And this guy arrived, and quite a sort of scruffy individual. I thought he must have been a trap worker. Uh, oh, Mr. Medley, yes, uh, I'm from BBC Television News. We want some footage for the 6 o'clock news tonight of your, your new role, youngest station manager. Uh, is that Okay. Now, the PR guy had gone to London. I thought, Simon, I ain't missing this. Mm. I said, of course it's fine. What do you want me to do? And we came out onto the platform, and they, they set the cameras up, and not the art clients, because it was uh, being under the canopy. It was reasonably dark. Yeah. And what do you want me to do? Well, next train comes in. You say to the driver, smile, driver, you're on TV. And that's exactly what happened. The train came in. The driver, looking at me, after he's win- opened his window, what's going on, governor? Um, I said, just smile, Robbie, you're on the six o'clock news and big smile on his face. And so that, again, gave me that uh, love of public relations and the power of it, as, as we were saying. Um, two years, I, Simon, um, I, I won't bore you with all the, what, what happened there, but lots of um, experience of dealing with people. I always thought if you can deal with irate London commuters, i.e. when a train's cancelled or late, you can do anything in life. Mm. So that was a good lesson. Uh, then I got called for interview to assistant station manager at uh, Orpington on the line from Charing Cross down to uh, Seven Oaks and London, Victoria, of course, via Bromley to Seven Oaks. A major, major junction. And in fact, um, I was working with a guy in 2016 um, and uh, he decided we'd have this Mr Yorkshire TV channel and he arranged, he was a film producer, and he arranged for us to go to Bellingham and to Orpington. He got permits from Network Rail. And that, that film is actually on Mr. Yorkshire TV on uh, YouTube. And I was amazed that Orpington, when I got there uh, in uh, 1971, I think it was, I was amazed how big it was then. Six platforms. It's now eight. 
So you can see how the area, mm. uh, obviously, um, you know, has expanded with uh, commuters, um, obviously from for London. Um, so interview got that job, and I remember arriving um, on the first day, the Monday morning, meeting my two colleagues. So there was Reg, who was the actual station manager, Colin, and I were mm. the assistants, and uh, and that was a quite a high cup in salary as well. By the way, it was. Uh, to be appointed you were then on what they call clerical officer four i skipped that and um and originally i was grade a then grade b and then grade c at orpington and with a, appropriate salary salary to go with that but i remember on the first morning meeting reg and, and colin and uh, got to meet you you know welcome to the team um we'll take you around have a coffee and then we'll take you around introduce you to various people and it was so funny. They they, they said to me, "There's a one of the inspectors who were the next grade below you. They they ran the station. Then you were like managing above them. Mm. Uh, it, it's a guy called uh, called Bill Finney, and Bill's ex-military regimental sergeant major. Um, don't worry about it. But he eats station managers, you know, for breakfast. That's sort of the scenario. And I'm thinking, oh golly, here's this young guy, 23, I think it was then." <laughs> And as we went round, Bill was on duty, and we walked into his office, and Colin just said, oh, Mr. Finney, this is Mr. Madeley, the new assistant station manager. And I put my hand down and said, uh, good morning, Mr. Finney. He grabbed my hand, and he smiled, and he said, what part of Lancashire, Lancashire do you come from, sir? I said, I don't actually come from Yorkshire. Never mind, sir, down here, we're allies. <laughs> and he and I became firm mates. But uh, I must say, I got on with everybody there and lots of other experience of dealing with situations. I won't bore you with that. Then um, I, I was getting to the point uh, that I was getting really frustrated. And you're seeing it today, Simon, with what's happened with the railway strikes and the drivers and so forth. In, in those days, I'm talking 1972-3, they were particularly militant. And least little thing that councillor trained and I was still a passionate railwayman. And I can remember on one occasion, there was a knock on my door. It would be probably quarter to five. And one of my porters, or railmen as we call them in those days, said, oh, Gugney, you need to come down. The driver of the 1701 to Victoria is cancelling the train. Why? He said, the floor's wet. I said, is it, is it wet? He said, it isn't, sir. It's been awkward. It's been through the carriage washing machine. The floor is a little damp, the seat's dry. So I went down, and there was this driver leaning against his cab, a smirk on his face. Mm. And I said, driver, what's the problem? The floor's wet. They can't cancel it. I said, so I got it in the cab and gone out. I said, look, it's it's damp. We'll, we'll, we'll dry it out again for you. Cancel it. So I thought, right, appeal to his uh, better humour. Um, driver, do you realise if you cancel that train, that's 700 people delayed tonight coming home from work from london and his comment was serve them right they're all snobs who live around here and i remember that that crystallized in my mind and i thought i can't cope with that for another uh, 40 years or whatever and that that uh, crystallized and i decided i would leave the railway and go back to uh, yorkshire you're listening to series four episode 27 and to my guest keith madeley this is another Squadcast interview recorded on the 6th of November 2023. Keith Maidley, a.k.a. Mr. Yorkshire, you'll find out why in the interview, 
left grammar school at 16 and joined British Rail as a clerk in Bradford. Two years later, Keith was moving to London for a promotion and then going on to pass all the exams to become British Rail's youngest ever station manager at 21 years of age. Keith cites this as a great grounding for his future. Leaving London at 25, Keith moved back to Bradford and initially worked as a PR manager at a computer software company before being promoted to general manager after three months and then becoming a director of a couple of their subsidiaries. At 28, Keith joined with a friend to form an independent financial advisory business, which they ran together for 30 years. Keith was always looking at developing new products and building their business with PR. In 2004, they sold their business onto a major company. Since that sale, Keith has been chairman and or non-exec director of several companies and charities or non-profits. Keith loves to help Yorkshire companies lift their profile and he is a member of the board of the Yorkshire Asian Business Association, known locally as Yabba. This role helps Keith on his personal agenda of promoting diversity and and inclusivity in the area. These days, though, Keith's main focus is marketing his wife's children's educational book series called Cones. Yep, that's right. The books are about those ubiquitous orange warning slash safety cones that everybody has seen. Keith has secured sponsorship for every one of the Cones books so far, each with a major company. With 18 Cones books now published, another seven in different stages, and more in negotiations, the Cones series is going from strength to strength. Right, let's do this episode 107 of Working Hours with Keith Maidley. When I resigned, it was unusual. Normally, the area manager would deal with it and ask you why, etc., uh, in my case, I was actually summoned up to head office, and the divisional manager was a lovely guy called Malcolm Southgate. Malcolm, at, at 28, had become the youngest ever station manager at London King's Cross, and then he obviously worked his way through. Um, he used to travel via Orpington, and I'd often see him at the station, have a chat with him, uh, and he called me up and, what on earth are you doing? And mm. he threw my file across the desk. Have a look at that. You're going places on the railway. Why? Why are you doing this? Yeah. And um, it, it was a nice feeling because I had two small children at that point. Um, but but I had my mind up. I thanked him sincerely mm. and said I've decided to go back to Bradford. Um, and the final comment was I was leaving. He said, "Look, Keith, if it doesn't work, ring me, and there's always a job for you." Uh, which I thought was. Very reassuring for a, a 25-year-old, you know, with a small family. So back to back to Yorkshire. Lots mm. of um, interviews, lots of jobs offered. Um, I suppose I was lucky in those days. The fact that you'd not been to university mm. wasn't the same as it is today. And in some respects, I was at a, a business breakfast seminar in Doncaster uh, a week ago, and the uh, three MPs speaking. They're all saying there shouldn't be the emphasis like we used to have on university education. Yes, it's great for the right people, but there's also lots of other experiences in life, like apprenticeships, earn well you learn and so forth. Mm. So going back to 73, things were different. And there was all sorts of jobs I fancied, and I got quite a lot of job offers. But the one that really uh, Mm. appealed to me was the public relations manager at a computer software company in Bradford. 
Now, bearing in mind, I have not a clue on computer software. Um, and in those days, was they used to call them systems analysts uh, and or programmers. And they would code everything, as you, as you would appreciate. Hmm. I, I got this job offered. And uh, third interview, the chairman said, look, uh, it's ironic. Hmm. We've got 18 applicants, 17 graduates, and an extension manager. And we want to offer you the job. Oh, thank you. So I started there and really enjoyed that. I had three years there and learnt a lot from the chairman and the managing director. They're both young, youngish chaps, set up the company. Mm. In those days, we were employing 50. And this company went, went on to become a, a PLC. You can uh, gather how successful they were. Within three months, the general manager resigned. Uh, they called me in and they said, look, we're delighted what you're doing for us. We'd like to offer you the role of general manager. Company car, uh, 25 again, just gone 25, yeah. company car and, and so forth. Nice salary increase. Now, th that was interesting because that everything, when I think back, Simon, links one way or the other to next stage in my uh, my life. Uh, one thing I had to take over was the insurances, and they were in a real mess. We'd got 50 company cars. Each one was individually insured. You can imagine what a nightmare that was. Mm. And um, I spoke to uh, my then father-in-law, and he'd worked for um, a chap with a, with a company called Stenhouse, which is now Aeon, massive insurance company, broken company. And um, and this was John. Um, John was introduced to me, came in. We, we got on like house on fire. It just set up, and this was, it set up in 1974. So, yeah, we will be talking 74. Uh, and we were one of his first major clients. He gave us a great uh, job. We gave him the business, and um, that's how my relationship started with with John Ellis. And we'd known each other probably a couple of years. And I took him into a printing company that we just bought for the group, and uh, and we got back in the car and we got chatting. And I thought this is the guy that I want to uh, go into business with. And I know it sounds ironic, does this? But as a station manager, you'd got, if you wanted, and I did, you, you could have agencies with uh, companies that sold insurance to yeah. your staff. And you got a commission. It was just helped uh, a little bit of spending money. And so I knew a little bit about life uh, insurance. Mm -hmm. And I just said to John one day, why don't we get together, John, and set up, uh, I'll do the life assur uh, assurance, you're doing the general broking. And, and he, he, he sort of jumped up, shook my hand, and he said, I've been wondering about this case. I can't think of anybody better I'd want to go into business with, but I thought you probably wouldn't want to take the risk. And I said, well, John, where I am, I, I've got a good job. I appreciate that. But I, it's not it's not me making the final decisions. With you, it would be. Hmm. And, and we shook hands, and that was 1976, Simon, and we started... Um, what was Ellison Co. Life and Pension Consultants? He was Ellison Co. Insurance Brokers, and um, and we just went from strength to strength, and we ran that company for thirty years together. Mm -hmm. John was coming up to uh, his mid sixties, and that's the reason why we decided to sell the company because mm -hmm. I, I was thinking I've worked with this guy so well that thinking of working with somebody different would would that work? But it was it was it was crystallised. Mm. But the interesting thing, as we were together, so many things um, we did that when I think back to my railway days and public relations, because um, 
in the sector in those days, a little bit better now, but the sector didn't really engage in public relations and press releases and things like that. So every time we did something, I would do a press release. I got to know the business reporter at the Telegraph and Argus in Bradford. Mm. The Yorkshire Post became big buddies then, still are, in what we're doing today. So we'd always get press releases. I design new products. Um, I, I, I sort of enjoyed that. In, in Bradford, I'm talking now in the mid-70s, and at that point, uh, the highest rate of tax, would you believe, was 98%. You wouldn't believe that today. The the highest earned rate was 83%. So you ended up with only 17p, you know, out of your pound, hmm. and, and 83 was, was paid in tax. But on top of that, if you had in, uh, hmm. investment income, there was another 15% surcharge, hence 98%. Hmm. And... A lot of people in Bradford uh, and the area, the Halifax Building Society, uh, the National and Provincial and so forth. Mm. So people, the, the nature of um, particularly West Yorkshire people was that money's in the building society, it never goes down and, and I get this interest on the money. And I say that's a problem though because you're only getting some people 2p in the pound on, on, on what, you're, what you're earning on your money. There were products that one could do that um, would would protect that income whilst it was in what we call an investment bond. Mm. But the underlying funds were either equities or property or gilts. So your money could go down as well as go up. And that, that didn't go down well with uh, Yorkshire people in those days. Mm. So eventually I, I thought we need to design a building society bond. Mm -hmm. And I remember traipsing down to Leicester Building Society, the, the Yorkshire companies, they didn't understand what I wanted. Uh, but I met um, an actuary from the, what was then, Provincial uh, Life Assurance Company in Kendall. He loved my idea. Mm. And it, it was revolu revolutionary. And eventually we found a building society called the Cone, the Cone Building Society in the Northwest. They loved it. They saw it. They're only a small society. They understood it. And we launched that in 1978. In those days, bearing in mind what the inflation, I think we took about half a million within the first week mm. because it, it filled a need. And I went on to um, design other products over the years. And um, so that that was a really great experience. And, and 30 years with John yeah. uh, was, was wonderful. We were having lunch the, the other week and just reminiscing on what, what we achieved. Mm. But um, as I mentioned, he retired. We decided to sell the company. And uh, we, we were really lucky because there was a guy I'd known quite a, quite a while. He used to work with an insurance company. And then he became managing director of this uh, independent financial advisory business. And um, Peter got to know where he wanted to sell the business, rang me, come and have a bit of lunch. He said, I'd give my right arm for it. We were then called Manor Financial Management. And uh, within three months, the deal was done, Simon. Now, that was 2004. Now, it, it's interesting because only two months ago, I got a telephone call from the financial director who worked for Peter at the time, mm. who dealt with the, all the um, financials of the deal. And um, he's now specialising in helping independent financial advisors lift the value of their company before they sell it. 
uh, asked me to go and have a coffee with him. And uh, he said, this is my new model. You, you still know people in the sector, which I do. If you can introduce them, that'd be really great. We can sort of do a little business deal together. So the reason why I'm telling you that, that's like 20 years on, but you never know what you're doing, how it can benefit many years in the future. Mm. And it's the same with networking. I've always said to people, um, it doesn't, it doesn't, you might go to a networking event and you'll come away and think, well, nothing's happened. Mm. But it doesn't work like that. You yourself will know that, Simon. You've got to keep going and meeting people and talking. And you never know. It might take five years. It might take three months. But it does work. Mm. I'll go into the next question, which is, what are you doing now? Right, okay. Since we sold Manor, I had three years um, working on, on, on the handover and yeah, Yorkshire Investment Group, who bought my company, were very, very good. By which time I'd, I'd got involved in all sorts of things. I was the chairman of the Yorkshire Society. I was involved with some uh, other uh, charities. And, and they basically said, you carry on doing what you enjoy doing. We'll support that because it's good for us as you meet people you're recommending them to the company. Mm. And I did that, uh, and then that finished in 2007. What I did then, I thought, well, I've got all this experience. I'd love to, there's no way, even now, no way I will ever retire. I will always carry on right till the end. And I just thought I can probably offer this as a non-exec director, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I've got a position as chairman of this digital marketing agency. And this is where the Mr. Yorkshire came from. So that wasn't a title I gave myself. I wouldn't have done that because I think that would have been who they think he is. And I was chairing this agency, and one morning one of the founders came in and just put on my, in front of me, right, we've just bought this domain name for you, mryorkshire.com, plus we've got Mrs. Yorkshire and so forth to protect the, the, the brand, um, and that's yours. And my media response was, I can't use that. Who the heck does he think he is? You can and you will, and there's your website. And that, Simon, was 2007. And the, the guy who came up with the idea is now the chief executive officer of one of the largest digital marketing agencies in Leeds, Enjoy, it's called. And they, they redid the website for me a few years back. Mm. So uh, it wasn't something I gave myself. But that really has been very, very useful in uh, talking to people and uh, anything on Yorkshire at the moment, the, um, there's a, a, a project with Land Securities and the company I know in the Midlands have got the contract to work with Land Securities on greening up the, uh, the shopping malls. Mm -hmm. And the first one in the country is going to be Trinity and Leeds. Mm. It's not official yet, but I'll, I'll share that with you. So they came to me and said, would you lead that up as Mr. Yorkshire? Mm -hmm. It's Yorkshire, it's Leeds. So anything like that is what I enjoy doing. So, yeah, non-exec directors, um, I, I chair an arts charity, uh, which is uh, quite rewarding because, again, it's working with business, again, business to support the arts. I did, um, from 2010 to 2013, I was chairman of business in the arts for Yorkshire, mm. and that was a part of a national body. But unfortunately, in the... The cuts of 2010, all the funding went, and uh, so we ran that for three years, and 
end of story. So, so I did all that. But going back to the time at the financial services, we opened an office in Bushy near Watford. Mm. And this was in the 90s. And we're up and down the motorway, A1 or the M1, and everyone, everyone was cursing traffic cones. And you might, uh, or you may not recall, in the 1990s, the Prime Minister of the day was a guy called John Major. Mm-hmm. And John Major introduced the Cones hotline because everybody was cursing traffic cones, um, even on the radio and uh, reporters, oh, where are, where are the cones today? And um, so you, if you're stuck in traffic, you'd see these signs on the motorway, Cones hotline. <laughs> And we stuck at Leicester Forest one day, and Chris, my wife, rang this number, and uh, the guy chuckled. This is uh, uh, Madam, Madam. He said, Madam, uh, we get roughly uh, a call a fortnight. Good to hear from you. These are where the cones are. She put the phone down, and she said, right. What I'm going to do, I'm going to bring these characters to life when the human eye's not looking, and they're going to learn all about human behaviour. And that really is how the cones started. But... It, it was an exciting idea, but of course we're running the financial services business, and um, a friend of mine in, in, uh, encouraged us to go over to Bologna uh, to the International Children's Book Fair, and that was in the late nineteen nineties, and we did that, Simon, and we had three days, and all we had was some drawings by an artist friend, and and the ideas, and we spent the three days talking to people, the BBC asked us back twice Hmm. and their comment was if ever you get published and you've got 13 books uh in in a series we will be interested in talking to you uh because it's like the wombles and mr men and and that scenario yeah and you've got enough content there that it's like oh we can commission it because it's a whole thing there's something to make something from yeah yeah now that that was 19 uh in late 1990s and nothing happened, apart from everything else we're doing. There's too much to cover in this interview. But the we found the um, current publisher in 2014. And this is now getting down to the point of what we're doing now. This is, this is really taking most of my time, but it's so rewarding. And um, we met this publisher, Children's Books. He was a specialist in that as well as general publishing. And I just came up with the idea and said, look, I've got all these connections. It's an, not an easy market. I know that from the research we've done. Why don't I get the book sponsored, Ray? And he sort of smiled and as much as say, yeah, I've heard that before. Uh, but if you can do that, Keith, that'd be, that'd be great. Uh, I came back three days later and said, Jaguar Cars, Rick, Coupark, first sponsors. That was book one. And um, we now, we've just had book 18 published, Simon. We've got 19 due out. By Christmas, we should have book 20 out. And all these books are sponsored by leading organisations like Balfour Beatty on three books, Bam Nuttall 4, Northern Power Grid 2, Eurovia Roadworks 2, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And um, that now, when I think back, it's all the connections I've built up over the years, but also the knowledge of public relations and now to deal with the media uh, the Yorkshire Post have done several articles on the books already, Bradford Telegraph, Telegraph and Argus. Uh, we've just got a book which will be coming out in the new year now. Uh, it'll be over, it'll probably be book 23 or 24, and that's on Bradford. Mm. And that's Balfour Beach's third book. 
So we've covered ecology, sustainability, diversity, inclusivity, waste management, uh, careers, and careers has been a really good subject because um, these books are aimed at primary school children. Mm. Uh, Chris will go in and do a reading, and the teachers will always say, if you can get a message over to a child when they're seven or eight mm. and you get that seed in their mind, then that's when they'll, they'll formulate ideas. So the fact you're talking of construction, uh, engineering, uh, this age is, is wonderful for the children to hear and to see the opportunities. Yeah. And all real world skills as well. Not like not coding, not like, you know, people that have to build the things for the coders to live in. <laughs> Absolutely. Sam, you've got it in, you've got it in one. And um, also there's an emphasis, uh, particularly for girls that don't say construction's not for you. Construction can be for you. We've got a book that's just been published. It's on the Transpennine Rail Route upgrade. And um, the head, of, the civil engineer uh, in charge of the project at Ashton the Line mm. was a young Welsh woman. She's only 28. Mm. And civil engineer. She'd even been uh, in Australia working and uh, New Zealand. But she was heading up this group of guys. And she'd also got a female uh, apprentice, Harriet. And uh, Harriet and Linosh are in the book. And in fact, last week, I noticed Harriet had uh, posted on social media the cover of the book, a picture of her, and, and that's already gathered well over a thousand impressions and comments from people. Mm. Uh, wonderful. It's great. And it's good for the course books. Mm. So, right, summing everything up there, all that experience of dealing with the financial services for 30 years, uh, dealing with press releases and so forth mm-hmm. uh, has really paid dividends for what we, Chris and I now call our little family business, producing books um, for children. Simon Holmes, their book was published number 15 in February, and they've actually bought, Simon, 25,000 books, which have gone to all their regional offices. Mm. We're picking up comments from Scotland, Cornwall, on what the, the the reaction of children in schools has to give out those books. Mm. I mean, I, I imagine from the model that you have, you're kind of in profit already when you're making the book, and then anything else that that happens on top of that is surplus. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. There's a sponsorship uh, fee yeah. for for a book, uh, which obviously that's between us and the and our publisher. Yeah. And, and then that gets the book, and then they buy the books, and there's um, money, obviously, off the book sales. Well, uh, yeah, and it's it, it's it's a marketing budget, but it's not just a marketing like our business exists. It's also like, you know, it's the PR level of this is what our business does, and we are or can be a great place to work, and maybe you should think about working with us. Uh, th- this is why the companies love it. <clears throat> and in fact, Leeds Council, they've been involved in two or three books, and they rang me. Um, last year and said one of our main contractors, which is Colas, C-O-L-A-S, are doing uh, some major roadworks at Horsworth Roundabout in uh, Leeds. And they've just said, we know we need to do some social value as part of our contract. What can you recommend, Peter? And he just straight away said, you can't really beat the cones. Next thing, we're sat in their office in Morley, and that's another book uh, that's been written as we speak, Simon. We've kind of covered some of the how you got into it. We'll go into the questions and then maybe we'll come back to talking about more things later. So 
I'll crack on with, well, we'll do COVID first and we'll get that done. Um, so the question here is, is basically thinking about going into lockdown and whether you were working more, working less, or whether it didn't change. And then coming out of lockdown and coming out of COVID potentially, is there anything that sort of changed for you long term in how you work from that? Yeah, very much. I remember we just um, got a second commission from Grand Central Railway. Um, they'd got the franchise from London, uh, from Blackpool to London, Euston. And their book, number three, Comes on the Rails, won the National Rail Award in 2017 for passenger safety. And Chris was extremely proud of it. And they were uh, of winning this accolade. And um, so they commissioned this book. Uh, COVID started within weeks. Sean, who was the chief operating officer, a very good friend, rang me and said, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this, Keith. It's, it's really not good news. What's that, Sean? We're having to cancel the book because we've actually withdrawn from the route. Mm. Uh, our income is tickets and people weren't travelling, as you know. Mm. Um, and I thought, gosh, how is this going to affect what we're doing? Mm. But then, of course, like you and I today now, virtual meetings as we all know, Teams and Zoom started. And I quickly realised that this was a, a, a more productive way of talking to people initially. Mm. If you then lose the interest, then, of course, you have your actual meetings. Mm. Uh, I don't think we should ever um, stop actually having actual meetings because it's there where lots more ideas come up. Mm -hmm. but certainly, the virtual meetings have made a massive difference and very, very quickly after that situation with Grand Central, um, I was introduced to a company, Harworth, um, in uh, uh, Rotherham. And they were building the new town of Waverley on the old Orgreave coking plant. Mm. They were really interested and said, look, we, we have the virtual meeting. Come on down. And what we can do, we'll go in our car. You stay in your car. Follow us round. Phones open. And we'll talk you through what we're doing. And that and that worked an absolute treat. Mm. Uh, and we'd stop off occasionally and get out of the cars, keep our distance, as you had to do. Uh, but we could talk to each other. And that book was, um, well, it was actually published as um, COVID eased. Mm. And uh, it was published in a, a brand new school that Harworth built in the new town of Waverley. Mm. So, and like now with you and I, it's a virtual meeting. It saves us traveling and so forth. We've just picked up a book on Doncaster, the city of Doncaster, mm -hmm. which will be second in the series on cities and towns. Uh, the first we did by email, then with the virtual meeting. That went really well. And then Chris and I went down and, and had a meeting with the head of heritage and culture uh, and shook hands on a book. Mm -hmm. But if, if that virtual meeting had have, um, proved that probably this is not the one for them, we'd have saved all that travelling uh, to Doncaster, wouldn't we? Yeah. As it happened, it worked. Yeah. So summing up, Simon, on COVID, um, yeah, COVID itself was horrendous among the people who've lost family and so forth. But from a business point of view, I think it's transformed the way we work with this virtual meeting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of some of the conversations kind of like it's, it's accelerated a change that was already happening, but was happening very slowly um, in terms of these sort of meetings. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, already that that discussion because it's easy to just sort of let something like that just pass by of like because you'll see articles on LinkedIn or whatever of like, oh, you know, business has changed this way or this has changed this way. But this it's a, it's a really significant change that we've already got blasé about. Yeah. But it is like there are lots of benefits from it. And I think we are learning now. Like initially, do you remember when we used that they talked about Zoom fatigue and yeah. everyone getting really exhausted from being on camera for too long? And yeah. But I, I think we're we're finding the balance now. So there's there's a lot of Zoom meetings, but generally they try and keep them a bit shorter. They try and keep them to to the point. So yeah, I think we're learning the ways of how to do the the online meetings properly. I agree totally with that, uh, Simon. And it's like anything else, isn't it? Uh, initially, wow, get a Zoom, get a Zoom. Uh, then, we, as you mentioned, the Zoom fatigue. But but now we do it properly. We plan it, and we know it's like going to be a business meeting, mm. and we we get over the messages we want to do, and then we can decide is the next stage an actual meeting. Yeah, yeah. So I shall jump into. We'll do Brexit next. Yes. Uh, so Brexit beginning of twenty one. Obviously, some of that crosses over with COVID and the pandemic and so on. Um, so for some people, it's not always something that they can tell anyway. But the question here is, has any has anything changed for you work-wise since we've Brexited? Has it changed your work for the better, for the worse, or is it the same? I think in general, the answer to that is probably the same. Mm. Um, I, can't, I can't really put my finger on anything that I would say to you, that's because of Brexit. Mm. So I, th- I think things have, have um, remained the same from our point of view with, with what we're doing. Mm. I mean, it, uh, the only thing that you're potentially going to be sort of sending in and out of the country, maybe your supplies for books or your printing, and maybe if you send any books internationally, but I would imagine that you are largely UK-focused, largely UK-based. So, yeah, it's not something that you would necessarily notice. It, it, we we ourselves, Chris and I, wouldn't notice that. I suppose if the books were being posted to Germany, mm. then that would probably be our publisher that would be dealing with that with the printer. So yeah, we wouldn't be directly affected. And that's it. You don't need to send the physical copy of books anywhere because you just send it to a printer somewhere and they can print it for you. Absolutely, and the books uh, are available for the retail market on Amazon, on Waterstones, and um, Barnes and Noble. I think it is in the states. I know books have been bought in the states. Mm. Books have been bought in Australia. Colas, I mentioned to you earlier, uh, they rang me and said they were going to their Canadian office. Uh, could we let them have some books that they could share with their Canadian partners? And obviously, their book is still not published. So we sent them a selection of books. The great thing was we got some photographs and there was the president of Colas Canada with a cones book in, the, in his hand. The chief executive had another one and there were the English colleagues around them and the headline was cones go to Canada. So we are getting uh, international exposure. Mm. Um, but as you just said, Simon, if books were going out there, it would be the printer and the publisher that would be dealing with that. 
have you got some translated into other languages? Yeah, yes, yes, we have. We've got um, what what really started was uh, I run a business club, the Unity Club, and the uh, the venue at the time, in probably about 2019, 2020, was um, on Quebec Street in in Leeds, mm. and the receptionist used to see me talking to people about Cohn's books. Um, people interested in the cones, potential um, sponsors and so forth. And one day she just said, I would like to buy some of those books to send to my school in Brazil. And I had a word with the publisher and he said, look, why, obviously Brazil, mm. Portuguese, why do you get her to translate the book into uh, Portuguese? Mm-hmm. And then we can send it uh, in, that, in that language. She jumped at that. Partly because, obviously, on her CV, she could now put she was a translator. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was done in Portuguese. Next thing, a friend of mine said, oh, I'll do you one in French. Uh, I then spoke to the University of Leeds and Professor Benoit Wang, who is the head of the School of Chinese Language at the university. I met him, and he'd been sent the cones on the rails. And his first comment was, well, number one, uh, I used to be David Cameron's personal interpreter. He was very proud of that. And then he said, I would normally delegate this key, but I've read the book, and my little boy has read the book. And we've fallen in love with it, so I will personally translate that book for you. So Professor Bin Wang did that one. Then we got uh, Japanese. Then came German, Polish, Italian, and Romanian. So we have got titles in different languages. If you were going to sort of go international and going back to, you know, staying on the conversation around the, the sort of Zoom meetings and so on, would it be a matter of, you know, you, you try and find uh, someone in the country and then you you build up that relationship over Zoom and then eventually you fly out and you make the meeting? But the world's so globalized that you don't even need to do that. You just stay in Leeds and you you meet people and they translate your book. And then you've got a new market. Spot on, Simon. Just thinking about it, now you've reminded me. We've had um, talks, Zoom meetings with India, with Australia, with New Zealand, um, again with Canada. And um, the the, the great thing with what we're doing with the cones, uh, traffic cones are everywhere in the world. Mm. The matter slightly different sizes, slightly different colours, apart from obviously you've got the reflective white, but they're everywhere. Yeah. Um, I I always remember when this was just an idea and we were, one of the insurance companies we worked with were based in Luxembourg. Uh, I won't go into the details, but it was a a brand new concept that they designed and um, they decided to fly uh, with our wives, uh, a group of us over to... um, New York, and it was via Concord. And as of course, as we arrived there, Christian's first thing she said was, "You could almost say Concord because of the shape of the nose." And she did actually write a story; it's never been published, where the cones meet Concord. And now I'm telling you that because when we got to America, and we were just talking about this with the tour guide, it was an American lady. And remember her saying, gee, I love this. You can have the cones go to Connecticut with the conifer trees at Christmas and straight <laughs> into the language. Uh, and in fairness, actually, I've not covered that with you. That, that what started as a little bit of a joke with the cone words 
uh, Chris went to a primary school to do a reading in Wakefield, and uh, she mentioned the Corn Wars. So the 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 four main characters: Corn, Cornrad, Cornsons, Cornbearer, and Conan. But when there's a story, for instance, on construction, the guiding Corn who tells the other four about the the uh, story here is in that case constructor we've got confluence of covered uh, flooding and so forth and chris mentioned this and she went finished the reading went to the next class and as she's coming out of the classroom the earlier teacher just said chris chris you've got to come and look at this and she took it into the classroom and there the whiteboard was covered covered in corn words and she said what you've actually done chris here it's amazing You've shown the children how the vowel has a power over the consonant and changes the, the sounding of the word, like construct, construct. And, and, and that's really now very much part of the book, Simon. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Getting a little bit of linguistics and phonetics yeah, in there. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you've cracked onto something there really, really good because there's, there's so much pliability to it, isn't there? There's like... Yeah. Because anything that requires any level of safety, I mean, even cleaning, you know, going back to the um, going back to you leaving the railways and that guy stopping the train. If like, you know, if it's a wet floor, there'd be a cone on it. And that cone there could tell that story of why this train's yeah, fine to yeah, go. Yeah, <laughs> you're into it. You're into it straight away. <laughs> so, um so we'll do social media because I think, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of danced around it a little bit. Obviously, I mean, in a way, you're a content producer. You, you, the books are content. You're creating that content, and then you're creating further social media content around it. Do you do that work yourself? Do you farm that out? Is that more of the PR kind of stuff? Like, how much time do you spend doing social media work? And do you see the value in that? Do you do you immediately see like I get a really good return from this? Social media is really good. Like, I I know what to post, and I get what I need from it or is that kind of I know it's valuable but I'm going to give it to someone else because I'm not sure I know how to do this I uh, I do do it myself mm. and um, it is extremely valuable mm. and it works mm. so I tend to concentrate more on LinkedIn mm-hmm. which is the business one as you know um, and to some extent Facebook but the thing with LinkedIn what I found is amazing Going back probably, what, 20, 25 years, to try and get hold of decision makers wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. You could do it by meeting people and so forth and mm-hmm. eventually get up the chain. But people like chairman of major organizations, they were protected by uh, the personal assistant or private sector or whatever. Mm-hmm. With LinkedIn, as you know, Sam, if, the, if that person is prepared to make connections, they're on LinkedIn. Prime example, Book 17, HS2. Uh, I read that the new chairman was Sir Jonathan Thompson. Mm-hmm. Looked on LinkedIn. There's Sir Jonathan. Sent him a note. Uh, and I, I always put a message with the um, the invitation mm-hmm. so that they know why I'm wanting to link up. And uh, with that one, I just mentioned it's really good to be working with you at HS2 with our partners, which is EKFB, IFIDGE, here for Oville and Bam, um, and and this children's book gave him the web address. He came back within ten minutes. He'd linked it with me, but he then sent a message, which is so important. 
that's on our latest brochure. What a good idea. So to get something like that from someone of that standing mm. is brilliant. I was talking to a guy the other day, the chairman of a billing society, and it just came up in conversation. And um, I thought probably there's nothing there. But after the uh, meeting, I sent him the Cones brochure and literally came back again within half an hour and said, this is absolutely brilliant. I've sent it to our comms and our HR department to see how we can work with you. Mm. Well, that wouldn't have happened uh, 20 odd years ago. Mm. So to me, social media, it's a must. Um, I'm not just keen on, as we now call it, X, because um, I don't like to anything that's contentious. Don't want to get involved in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And LinkedIn, probably 90% of LinkedIn is purely business focused. Mm. But I have found it invaluable, Simon. And I do, on average, nearly a post a day on something, particularly with the cones. Mm. And it's, it's amazing how that triggers impressions, comments, views. Mm. And then you can, as you know, you can see who's actually um, been viewing the, the post. And if it's someone that, ah, that's an interesting one, I'm not linked up with that person, they would be good for a, another book, link, and off you go again. What do you think? I mean, obviously, you're someone who does a lot of networking. You're used to doing a lot of face-to-face networking, talking to people directly, building those links. And as you've said, you know, like it's not always an instant thing. These things can come back later and they're kind of building seeds and stuff. Do you you see social media competing with that old style of networking or is it complementary or do you, does it ultimately come down? I mean, Obviously, this is subjective as well. Uh, but for you, does it ultimately come down to you've got to meet them face to face? Like if you're going to be doing business with the person, ultimately, you want, especially if it's going to be, a, you know, a kind of long term, if it's not just a sale, if it's going to be doing business, you need to meet them. You need to do the handshake. You need to sort of, you know, feel their presence in a room kind of thing. Um, very interesting. Last Thursday was the, the business desk of Big Buddies of Mine ran um, mm-hmm. a, a seminar, uh, a full-day conference, uh, the business of Yorkshire. Um, I booked on that straight away because there were people on there I wanted to link up with uh, and listen to, and if I could get the opportunity of speaking to them. We're looking at a Combs book on Sheffield, and one of the speakers was David Bond, who was the MD of Forge Masters. I'd already linked with David. I've got some interest in the book, he put me in touch with his HR director, uh, but he was speaking. So I managed to just grab him for two or three minutes. Uh, he was very, very, um, uh, you know, pleased to, to um, actually physically link up. I was able to give him the brochure and, and the book because there's nothing like, uh, with the Cones books, we know if people have got the book in the hand, yeah, they love it. That children... Uh, senior business people. They, and they they'll learn. look at it. If you put it in their yeah. hand, they'll look at it like on the train, you know, waiting for the train or in a cab ride, or it's just like they'll flick through at the very minimum. But you see, the so the PDF works. I've got PDF of the brochure, I've got PDF of the books. The brochure in particular, that's great to send to someone mm. so they can send it to their colleagues. Mm. But once we've got that initial interest, we make sure they've got the actual thing in their hand mm. uh, and that does make all the difference. Mm. So the two together, um, benefits of Thursday, I was there all day, 
people who I didn't get chance to meet, they're, they're on the agenda, uh, LinkedIn, uh, I spent Friday, most of Friday, just linking up with all these people who I didn't get chance to talk to, or even if I did get chance to talk, to send them a PDF of the brochure mm-hmm. so they can send it to me. So the combination of the two there together, really, Simon, what I'm saying to you is so powerful. Mm. Two together, as we mentioned, meeting people, but uh, if listening to people and then LinkedIn and then meeting them, the two together are just uh, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So I'm going to move on to the next question uh, because I'm conscious of how we're doing for time. So... uh, Climate change. So Leeds is a city that has declared a climate emergency. Is there anything in your work that you can do for promoting awareness or for uh, adaptation or mitigation of climate impacts? Or is it anything that occurs, you know, is it part of your work or is it something that's kind of outside of your work? It is actually very much part of uh, of mine and and Chris's work. Mm. Um, well, going back as well to the greenhouse campaign, with, which I mentioned with uh, the shopping malls, mm. uh, again, that's all to get people um, aware of the green agenda and to see how they can play their part. With the Cones books, we've already covered Drax and the biomass. Um, biomass, they were getting sort of negative publicity, but, it, but when you actually look at what they're doing, um, it, is, it is very, very clean what Drafts uh, are doing with biomass and providing power much clean, much much cleaner than coal mm. um, and so forth. So that's in the book. We've just launched one on waste food, and uh, with, there's a company in Barnsley that buy a lot of food that historically used to go into uh, landfill. Mm. But this, it, the food is within date. Mm. Uh, but the supermarket, for whatever reason, don't want it. This firm buy it they'll repackage it all within date mm. and then you and I can buy it online mm-hmm. um, or the, it'll go to smaller shopkeepers who will buy it and obviously sell it on. Mm. And that's, that's a massive saving. We, we launched that book in a primary school in uh, Doddworth near Barnsley and with a head teacher and uh, some staff and year three children. And it, it was incredible the, the message that um, our colleague, uh, Jonathan Strait, who you may have come across, Jonathan, an expert in waste management, and he spoke about what is wasted mm. and how this book can help you children to help you, you and your parents uh, the benefits of saving food. Mm. Absolutely brilliant uh, was that, Simon. So um, climate change is very much, it's given us a, a whole new sector to feature in the books. It's that it's that thing again of like you you've you've found the right medium you know with the coins of just you can cover anything you know you you could do the Olympics you could do you know well, you could do sporting events you can do political events you can do events you can do building you can do construction and destruction you know it's uh... well I can, I can quote his name because he, he said I could but. Um... The former chairman of the uh, Leeds Local Enterprise Partnership, Sir Roger Marsh, fantastic chap, Sir Roger, and he was he did such a good job with the Leeds Let that eventually was the uh, chair of the eleven Northern Leps. He's, he's stepped down now. Uh, two small children. He he got some of the earlier Coles books, mm-hmm. 
and it was probably a year or so ago, he rang me and he said, just Keith, I had to ring you to say I was watching my daughters with the Corns books. He said, do you know, he said, I think what your Chris has done, she's invented the Ladybird books of the 21st century. Mm. And, and I'm saying, uh, slow down, Roger, the chairman of the let said, <laughs> and he said, you can quote me, you can quote me, because he said, I think the books are doing a wonderful job mm. in, in the playing their part in, in education to some extent. Uh, for children of what's happening in the world today. Mm. And um, so, yeah, it, it, whatever, we can use the, the books to get that message over. Yeah, and like I say, you know, there's the, the the sort of recruitment angle, there's the public safety announcement angle, there's a... And it, it, it's a key intervention there, that, that synergy between your your past working experience... And and the books of because they could have just been a series of children's books about cones yeah. and so on, but that bringing that sponsorship element in, that's kind of like, no, that seems. But that's that's the key element because that's the thing that drives, you know, what is the inspiration for the next book or what is you know where do we go next? What can we look at next? Yeah. Because yeah, the problem with having something that you can go so wide on is that you're overwhelmed by choice. yes, yes. So you've got a nice limiting factor there where it defines of like, okay, well, we've got sponsorship for this. We've got sponsorship for this. So what can we do on that? So it, 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 it's a really nice package. And again, going back to the sort of insurance thing of like, there's a gap here. There's a gap here. I can fit these things together. And this is, this is a package. And it makes sense. And it instantly makes sense. Like you don't have to over explain the idea. Do you? It's kind of like it's children's books. You can put some money towards it to help us make the book. You'll get yourself in the book and this will go to a bunch of children and they'll think good things about you. And you've been involved in something good. In a, in a nutshell, you've summed that, uh, that up so well. And I, I would just mention as well, when I think about it, um, I came across this super chat, Richard, um, who designed um, CSR accreditation. He's based in Buckingham. I think he worked with the uh, university there uh, on this uh, concept. And the whole idea is um, any company that's doing something for social value, they get a certificate. And th there's different levels they can go to. Um, I, I said, Richard, this is what we're doing with companies, social value, etc. And he said, uh, my wife's a primary school teacher. Would you believe that, Simon? If you can send a couple of books, I let my wife go into school, see what she thinks. And literally, it was back within days. She thinks this is marvellous. So we have a deal with Richard. So every one of our partners gets a CSR certificate for the social value agenda. Mm. Uh, hence, of course, Lee's Council with Corliss. Straight away, they've got the certificate. Mm. So they can prove what they're doing with the books. Mm. Yeah. And that they, you know, that they're interested in their staff that they're interested in their, you know, their community or, or they, you know. Yeah. I'm going to move into the final two questions. Uh, so I'm going to do, I'll do the UBI question first, then I'll do the change question because I think that'll be a better way around for this. Uh, so if there was a universal basic income, so if everyone was getting a basic amount of money, some money on a regular basis each month to help towards whatever, do you think that would change anything for you work-wise? Like, would you 
stop working, work less, work more? Uh, or would you just do something else entirely? Would it make any difference at all? Or would you not even notice it? It'd just be like, well, it's bonus, bonus cash, hooray. How, how would it change things for you? I wouldn't be involved, Simon. The As I mentioned earlier, the we've got a lovely business now with the cones. There's other uh, income-producing things I'm doing. So we've got family company. We get income from that. So um, anything that's um, a, apart from our state pension, of course, which we get, uh, we're not looking for other benefits. I, I mean, if, if it had been available when you were working on the railways, for example... So if you were getting a, a monthly payment, well, let's say for the example of when you were thinking of leaving and you said, you know, you had the young family there. Do you think maybe that could have, you could have come to that decision sooner if there was some kind of other security there? I mean, I guess you were on a pretty decent wage at that point in your career at that time. So I would guess that you had some savings when you made that decision of yeah. like, you weren't going to be at risk of being thrown out the next week because you were leaving that job. But do you think that at points, or let me put it another way, would there have been points in your life where it may have come in useful for you? I can't really think uh, it would. Um, I've touched wood. I've always, always been in employment one way or the other, whether it's been my own company or working uh, in the early days for people, Simon. So I've, in that respect, I've been fortunate. I've never needed um, to go on to state benefits. But uh, having said that, uh, I'm pleased they're there for people who do need it. And sometimes total circumstances beyond their control, they need that help. So the fact that there is benefits there for people, I, I, I endorse that. And um, I hope and pray I don't need them. So we'll do the change question. So. I mean, again, this is always an interesting one, especially with people who are self-employed, because sometimes it's, well, you're, you're your own boss, so you can kind of change what you need to change or what you want to change. But, you know, there's always things that are beyond your control or your ability to change. So if you could change any three things about your work right now, what, what would you change? Um, I thought about that question when you sent it through. And I've really struggled to try and find an answer to that. Um, I suppose the only thing I've changed is perhaps being able to get out more to meet more people, um, <laughs> which is almost going back on what we said about the virtual world. I just want to get more people. The, the cones really is the thing that, shall we say, I concentrate on. And um, so really, I, I'm looking, yes, I, I'm happy to help others. I run this business club out of Leeds Beckett University in Leeds, and that's to encourage SMEs to be able to meet up in a in a business atmosphere. Um, yeah. Not like What's that called? At the Unity Club. So the Unity Club is based at the Rose Bowl at Leeds Beckett. So I run that, and I enjoy that. Uh, I, I do enjoy working with universities, business and education. My club as the vice chancellor, as joint president with the managing director of business desk. So there's mm. a strong message there for everyone, business and education working together. Mm. So, yes, I, I run that. Um, and obviously, I'm, I'm involved with another independent financial advisor, helping introductions for him. And I have a few other 
uh, roles that I've got, like chairing the uh, I, I chair the Scott Creative Arts Foundation, mm. and and that, that's very rewarding because that was a couple who had no children, both artists in their own right, based in York. Um, Eileen died. Uh, Michael then called um, Sue, and Sue is our publisher's wife. Mm. She's an international vet in her own right as Sue, and uh, but obviously met through our publisher. Um, and then they said, uh, Michael said, look, when I die, we're going to leave all our estate in trust for you to set up a, a charity for emerging artists in Yorkshire. And that actually happened in 2016. Um, I was uh, asked by Sue in 2020 to take on the role of, literally just before COVID, the role of chair. And um, having done Yorkshire business in the arts, I thought, this is great. I, mm. I do think you need to, yes, obviously the cones, and that's got to be number one. But I do think you need other interests as well, Simon, mm. and you're the same. So that, I get real satisfaction out of chairing that one. We had an event at uh, the Lawrence Bathley Theatre in Huddersfield, uh, an exhibition, uh, just over a week ago. And it was great to get so many people coming and seeing what, the artists have done. We have an, an annual Emerging Artists Award, and this was the 2023 awards that people were looking at. So, mm. so there's that, um, which I enjoy. But going right back, um, it's the emphasis has got to be on cones because it's mm. producing business for our family company. Mm. Yeah, and and it's something. That's obviously interesting to you as well and to your wife, you know, like, I mean, she, she keeps writing them. So, I mean, so long as she keeps producing them, you, you can keep selling yeah. them. Well, I've got to say, both of us, we were just sat last night, um, put the telly off and just enjoying a glass of wine together. And we were just saying how blessed we are that we both, we're learning so much of what's going on in the modern world. And we wouldn't change that for anything. And if Chris, as you say, can carry on creating the stories around that. Mm. And when we go to a reading at a school, I always go and I sit back and just watch the reaction of the children as she's reading the story. Mm. And it's quite incredible. And then the hands up at the end with questions. Um, and I just think, well, it's, it's just a great thing we're doing. Um, and I mentioned the Cones Hotline. One thing we... Um, I said to Chris, we, we really need to find John Major's address. And we found that last year. And we sent him a brochure, a couple of books. And we had this fantastic letter back from him, Simon, just saying that he did get a lot of stick when he brought that out in the uh, 1990s. People say, oh, what a silly idea. And it, the comment was that just great that from that, there's this really good thing that's happened, mm. uh, which is educating children. So that was great. We've also got, we went, uh, Chris did one on the Leeds Children's Hospital. And at the first meeting, they just said, we've got some really good news for you. Our royal patron is the, as, as was the Countess of Wessex, now the Duchess of Edinburgh, and Buckingham Palace have agreed for her to be in the book. And Sophie Wessex, not only that, sent a couple of sentences to go in the story. Mm. So the fact that we've got people like that getting involved with us, chairman of hs2 you know chairman of the building society saying this is brilliant we will continue with that for as long as we can the key thing isn't it it's it's yeah 
but it's the ultimate thing that you want. It's it's the win win package, isn't it? It's like there's no downside to this. You can't you can't lose. No, no, no. There's there's always a story. Yeah. Like I've gone through my questions. This is a point where I do the kind of social media. Like where where can people find you? Find out about well, I guess about the Unity Club and about cones and anything else that you want to let us know about. So I'll let you do any socials first, and I'll put them in the show notes as well. Obviously, that's that's really kind, Simon. The um, there's still Misty Yorkshire TV. That was 2016, but there's still still some relevant items on there. You can find that Misty Yorkshire TV on YouTube. Um, my website is Mr. Yorkshire, all one word, miyorkshire.com. The Unity Club is the Unity Club Leads, all one word, dot com. The Cones Books, it's the Cones Books, again, all one word, dot co dot uk. Mm-hmm. Um, my email is Keith at MrYorkshire.com. That's my main email. If anybody wants uh, anything from me on anything we've spoken about, just email me. I'll always come back with uh, with an answer and um, and it could be something to help them with their business as well mm. let's do a little bit more on the unity club um so i want to go back to the, the the kind of networking thing and just your sort of making connections for the future and obviously you said you know you do speaking events and so on as well so as much as it's about getting to know other people, there's a level at which it's getting other people to know you as well. Um, and I suppose the other side of that, it's not just about knowing the people that you need to know when you need to do something. It's also about people knowing what you can do for them when they need you so that they can make you offers and opportunities. Yeah. And you might not always take the offer or opportunity, but it's always good to keep getting them. <laughs> and, and then you can refer them on to other people if you know other people. So, I, I mean, if you, I mean, is that, mm. is, is that everything to networking? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't really got a question here, but I'm, I'm basically trying to set it up as a space where you could just sell the benefits, I guess, of, of networking. I mean, it's, it's obviously played such a huge part in, your career Very much. and it's something that seems to have become more and more important as you you know as you've gone in these different directions so um I mean do you feel when did you catch on to that when did you sort of see networking as something that was a benefit or was that always a kind of were you always a sort of it's not what you know it's who you know sort of thing and I need to know the right people and I need to get into the right places I, th- I think it was certainly that played a part Simon on the railway Obviously, meeting Mr. Southgate at the station, knowing who he was and talking to him, uh, and making sure you'd say something that he would remember you positively with. Mm. So that started meeting, getting to know passengers and things of that nature. Mm. Then working at um, what was NDP, the, the computer software company, learning again from David and Barry, the chairman and the MD, how important it was to meet the right people and making sure I kept on their right side. Mm. Then with John, everybody became a potential. I used to say, I remember bringing two non-exec directors on board. They were the former uh, managing director and financial director of Mansell, which is a massive building company taken over uh, several years ago. 
And I said to them, why don't you come on as non-exec directors? Mm. I could see the power of that and with their expertise, their connections. Mm. Uh, I remember saying to uh, David, the MD, we went out for, for dinner. I said, the difference between Mansell and now in this restaurant, everybody is a potential for an IFA firm, whether it be life insurance, mm. whether it be a mortgage investment, where if you were in this restaurant with, as Mansell, there might be six people that might be of interest who, who want some construction doing. So uh, again, I could see the power of those two and their connections who they knew, bringing them on board, Simon. So, um, and another example that's happened only recently, um, I used to go to the University of Leeds and uh, talk to the students on networking, the power of networking. And there was an organization that they ran called AISEC, A-I-E-S-E-C, which mm. was international, by the way. And it's run by students for the benefit of students. And I, I used to go up and do that. And literally in the last few weeks, I was at uh, Nexus at the University of Leeds uh, for a, a luncheon. And I was waiting for someone. This young Indian guy went past, did a double take and said, Mr. Maidley. And I looked and he said, you won't remember me, but you used to come and talk about networking. He said, call me SK. And he said, I graduated in 2014. Went back to India. I've set up this company, a virtual reality, and uh, and I'll love you to see you. Would you believe now, Simon? I've met with him with our publisher, and he's now looking at the cones and virtual reality and cue codes on on books. Mm. Literally, then within two weeks of that meeting, I go to with Chris. We're a guest of the British Library, their fiftieth birthday celebrations in Leeds. We walk in, and this young woman just looked at me and said, "Keith Madeley." And I looked, and she said, you used to come to the University of Leeds to talk about networking. I graduated in 2013, and she's now a senior uh, member of the staff of the British Library, would you believe, Simon? Mm. So that's, again, the example, nine years, ten years, and paying dividends. I'm now helping the British Library and opening a few doors for them. Plans to move into the uh, Tower Works at uh, in Holbeck. Okay, so I'm going to ask the hard question on networking now. Um, that we can always cut this out if, or you don't have to answer if you don't want to, or but you can be diplomatic or whatever. But I'm thinking like downside. So, how do you manage? You must have had plenty of, you know, meetings, handshakes, people saying things, and they just don't deliver. Like, you know, you must have had things fall through. Yes, yes. How have you managed that? Do you think that's a case of? As you get better at it, more less things fall through, or is that always a kind of through line? Is it sort of, is it one of those things as you get better at and as your career develops, it, it less things fall through because you can kind of see which are the ones that are actually going to go somewhere? Or like, what are your tips and tricks on that? How do you manage it? How do you, what if you get something that you're really excited about and you're like, this is a project that, and then that falls through? Like, yeah, the downside of networking. How do you navigate that? I think you've got to um, you've got to keep an open mind and not be downcast mm. if something doesn't work as you think it's going to. And it's interesting. My wife, uh, the author, Chris, is a Myers Briggs practitioner. Mm. Uh, you've probably come across that, Simon, mm. with profiling, and and that really helps in a company because uh, if 
if you're building a team, the beauty of Myers Briggs, you can see the strengths and weaknesses in the team. Mm -hmm. Now, Chris gets her energy from writing words. I get my energy from meeting people, which is why we obviously get on really well. So she's the introvert. I'm the extrovert. Um, she would probably, her nature would be disappointed if she didn't get something from going to a meeting. That, I mean, I can't do what she does, writing stories, but mm. I realise that something might not come from that meeting, but you never know. You've, you've actually put out a message and look at what I've just said to you, nine years, ten years, and something happens. So the thing with with a situation like that, if, if you don't get what you um, think you really need from it, don't worry um, and don't be downcast. It is sort of the opposite of the marketing, you know, don't sell the steak, sell, sell the sizzle. Yeah. It, from what you've said, it seems like the opposite where you're like, don't go to the meeting for the opportunity. Go to the meeting. The meeting is the opportunity. Go to the meeting for the meeting. Yes. And you meet the person and you turn up and you you do you. And so long as you're not sort of letting the side down, if it falls through, then they know they can come back to you because you've been solid it's that not burning bridges thing again isn't it i suppose exactly in a nutshell that's that's mm. a good way to put it simon don't burn mm. the bridge that's a very good way to put it but the the thing with networking is don't be disillusioned so many people i've seen it so many times and they'll, they'll go and um spend two hours and the props paid i don't know 30 pounds mm. or whatever to be there and then you lay them say well that was a waste of time well it's mm. not a waste of time and it's like everything. You've got to keep going and be seen and, and people uh, know you. There's a, a wonderful guy in Leeds called Colin Glass. And Colin and, and I is just a few years older than me, still there, very active. He was sat next with, to me at the conference on Thursday. And as, as we were met in the foyer of the Queen's at the start of the day, and somebody just came in and said, ah, that's made my day the two most powerful networkers in the county and there you are together. <laughs> yeah, that sums it up. So uh, I've got one more quick question and then I'm going to straight over to you if there's anything else that you want to talk about. So just going back to you sort of, obviously within your story, you know, you said you didn't go to university, you, you, but you do go into universities. I imagine you've maybe got an honorary degree at this point from somewhere. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, thank you, Simon. The Leeds mm -hmm. Trinity University, I've helped them over the years introducing business connections. And I was at an event in 2019 when someone came up and said, oh, you've not answered the vice chancellor's letter. What vice chancellor's letter? I've not, I've not had a letter from the vice chancellor. Oh, it must have gone to your old address. Good long story short, they emailed it to me. And Leeds Trinity offered me a, an honorary fellowship, mm -hmm. which I was very pleased to take in 2019. And um, the current Vice-Chancellor now has this as an annual event. So uh, honorary fellows meet with your, with your spouse, your partner, mm. uh, and you get your new fellows, and, and it's a wonderful occasion. Uh, the Dean of the Business School at Leeds Beckett heard about this, and he was on the phone uh, quick as a flash, and he said, we're not having that. So I'm also... <laughs> A visiting fellow of Leeds Beckett. So <laughs> I do. So what I'm saying is, I'm, I am endorsing universities for the right people, yeah. for the right reason. Yeah. And, I, and I love working with them and get a great deal of satisfaction in introducing people to them. 
I mean, obviously, you didn't you you didn't go into an apprenticeship as such, and you you know you'd already kind of picked your career before you went into it, your early career at least. Yeah. I I mean, I just want to get your kind of thoughts on how you would sketch out, like, what would you change about the sort of, would it just be kind of there should be more apprenticeships, or do you think there's sh- what I'm getting at is you must have some ideas of how you would like to sort of bring young people into the workforce and like apprenticeships isn't wholly the answer university isn't wholly the answer like what are the kind of thoughts that you have what are the sort of things of that that you might change I'm not asking you to fix education and work and employment or anything like that I'm just like sort of from your perspective because I've done work with employers and with unions and with educators and stuff and does stuff around the skills agenda and I've heard a lot of the conversation about how do you who pays for the skills and how do you get the skills and how do you give people education lifelong and should everyone pay for it privately? All of these kind of things. What what are your kind of thoughts on it? Or or even you don't even have to remap it, but just sort of what do you think works well? What doesn't work so well? Um, I'm trying to give you as much space to talk about it in as possible, but I also realise I might be just bombarding you with words. No, no, no. Um, I think the other thing, to perhaps again just to mention, um, I'm also um, unofficial uh, in this, but an unofficial ambassador for the West Yorkshire Consortium of Colleges. Mm. And um, so all this is for the, it's called WYCC. And it's funded by the different colleges in West Yorkshire. And um, again, I, I help those because there's so much for young people that they may gain from a college. So they might not be university, but they can gain from the college. And funny enough, on Tuesday evening of last week, Chris and I were guests at the uh, Young Enterprise. And it's the 60th anniversary of Young Enterprise, where they've been going into schools uh, senior, obviously secondary school, and they get children, senior, well, when I say children, uh, older students, yeah. to set up a business. And if to do that, everything that you would do in a business, like register it, company's house, a cash flow, business plan. Mm. And I think anything like that, we are to encourage, Simon. So, um, and when we're talking on the Cones books, when Chris is talking about the story, um, and now there's a big emphasis on careers mm-hmm. and she'll say now look there at the back and you can see all the different careers say for instance with Balfour Beatty so you've got accountancy surveying um, HR mm-hmm. uh, communications mm-hmm. so there, there's something somewhere for everybody mm-hmm. and it's just encouraging uh, people where possible to try and help them find the right route to what they want Thank you again to Keith for being my guest. If you'd like to know more about Keith, you can find him at his website, mryorkshire.com. You can check out The Cones Books at their website, which is theconesbooks.co.uk. Thanks as always to all my guests and thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. If you are in Leeds or from Leeds, if you are Leeds, then please come on this show. Yes, I'm speaking to you. I still need to find 893 loiners to interview. So being a guest is the greatest help. You'll enjoy it. Remember to like, share, follow and subscribe to Working Hours. And please consider supporting Working Hours financially with either a regular or a one-off donation of any amount, either via Patreon or Ko-fi. 
You can email working hours at workinghourspod at western-studios.com. Okay, that's me. Work for peace and plan with kindness. Cheers, ears. Take care out there and be kind to each other, leads. Working Hours is produced, recorded, edited and published by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org. Follow Western Studios Leeds on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash western underscore studios underscore leads and on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios. Western Studios Leads will help you realise your podcast for only £25 for an hour of podcast work. Need podcast production, recording, editing, or any podcast admin doing? Need it all doing? Do you want or need a podcast host or co-host for your podcast project? Then get in touch with Western Studios Leads Limited. Email makemypodcast at western-studios.com to get your podcast made. I am available to third sector organisations, small to medium sized businesses and individuals who want to make podcasts or create other digital audio content. Want to make some fundraising case studies? Want to show off your expertise in your field? Want some help creating your show and format or just some support learning to podcast and getting going? Whatever your podcast needs, get in touch with Western Studios Leads. Go to western-studios.com and use the contact page to drop me a message about either working hours or about your own podcast project.